Hi, this is Justin Hibbert, and you're listening to Why Catholic, my podcast about the what and why of Catholicism. While normally these episodes are about 17 minutes long on various topics of Catholicism, every month or so, I like to do an interview with someone who is living out their Catholic faith in a unique way. And by the way, I've actually posted this interview on YouTube if you'd like to check it out on the Why Catholic YouTube channel. Now, back in episode 62, I talked about how not all Catholics are Roman Catholic. I mentioned that there are 24 sui juris churches that make up the whole of the Catholic Church. The Latin, or the Roman rite, is just one of those, albeit the largest. In episode 67, I interviewed a Melkite Catholic priest named Father Colin Nunes. In this episode, I interview Father Deacon Anthony Dragani. Father Deacon Anthony is a deacon at Protection of the Blessed Virgin Mary Ukrainian Catholic Church about an hour and a half east of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He is also professor of religious studies at Mount Aloysius College in Crescent, Pennsylvania. He is a doctorate in theology from Duquesne University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania and specializes in Eastern Christian theology. Here's my interview with Father Deacon Anthony Dragani. Well, welcome Father Deacon Anthony Dragani. I appreciate you being here. Oh, thank you for having me, Justin. I'm looking forward to talking with you. You know, I was um I did I was doing a series on the one holy Catholic church, and I wanted to focus on the unity as well as the diversity of the church. And one of the things I one of the episodes I did was called Not All Catholics Are Roman Catholic. And I was on an East on one of the Eastern Catholic uh forums on Facebook, and I I said, I asked the question, is there a good person that I should reach out to to interview for a podcast to learn more about Eastern Catholicism? And your name came up over and over and over again. So I really appreciate uh, you being here and being willing to uh, talk with me about Eastern Catholicism. Oh, my pleasure. I'm happy to hear that. That, That's cool. Yeah. Well, I would. And in fact, I just interviewed... uh, um, Father Colin Nunes in oh um, yes who's yeah in in Melbourne Australia and he was saying how your website has been helpful so I would love for for you to to just share where can people find you sure I have a website called from east to west and on there I have an FAQ about Eastern Catholicism so to find it you'd go to east the number two west dot org that's e a s t two west.org and again two is a number and there you can find a lot of information about me i have a links to many of my videos there and other stuff as well articles all right and i'll put a link in the show notes as well so people can right. can go directly to it now when i was on that site i was looking around and i was like okay uh Father Anthony Dragani, or who is he? And and then I saw Father Deacon, and then Father Deacon Anthony, and I was like, "Wait, are there more? Is there more than just one person?" Can you explain to me uh, the title, Father Deacon Anthony Dragani? Because in uh, in the Western tradition, we'll just typically call priests Father so and so. Right. So this is confusing to people in the West, but in Eastern Christianity, traditionally, the title Father isn't just for priests. So traditionally in Eastern Christianity, deacons are also called father as are monks. A monk who is not ordained could also be called father as well. Oh, and that confuses people. Now, father deacon is another variation on that where they'll say father and then deacon. So people aren't confused into thinking you're a priest. And that's used a lot as well. But the more traditional form is actually just father. Okay. All right. Good to know. 
Now, can you tell us a little bit about your Catholic upbringing? Did you grow up in the Ukrainian Catholic Church, or did, were you Western Catholic? Tell me yeah. a little bit about that. So um, I was raised Western Catholic. Both my parents were converts to Catholicism. They had become Catholic maybe a year before I was born. What tradition and did they come from? My my mother was Lutheran, and my father was Jehovah's Witness. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so they had a, it was a big jump. Um but they were drawn towards Catholicism and they became Catholic. They both had families with some Catholic backgrounds, uh, you know, going back. So they were drawn towards it. And I was raised a Roman Catholic, went to a wonderful Roman Catholic elementary school. I still love the Roman Catholic tradition. I never rejected it. But what happened was when I was a boy growing up, there were a lot of Eastern Catholic churches in my area. And the first time I went to an Eastern Catholic church, it was to a wedding of my parents' friends. And I remember going to this church and seeing these icons all over the walls and seeing the icon screen and the bride and groom were wearing crowns on their heads. I didn't understand it, but I was fascinated by it. I thought it was really cool and really different. I've always loved medieval fantasy. You know, uh, I'm attracted to things that are a little unusual. So that really kind of stuck with me. Well, as it turned out, one of my neighbors uh, became a very close friend. He was the same age as me and his family was Byzantine Catholic. And they would invite me to go to church with them sometimes. So there'd be Saturday nights, I'd stay over at their house and go to church with them on Sunday morning. And that's where I became acquainted with the divine liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. And again, I didn't understand it, but I absolutely loved it. It just spoke to me. And I got to the point where at night I'd have dreams about it. Like I dream about the divine liturgy. It just, it just haunted me. And years went by and I'd attend every now and then. And I loved it. And I always say, man, I wish I could be Byzantine Catholic. It never occurred to me that I could actually switch. I thought you had to be born into it. Um, but finally, when I was about 19 years old, I started attending the Byzantine Catholic churches uh, more regularly. And again, I just loved it so much. And it became clear to me that that's where I belonged. So when I was 21, I did an official change of right. And I became Eastern Catholic at that age. What is the process for changing changing rights? Well, really, people say change of right, but technically it's a change of church uh, because the Catholic Church is a communion of 24 different churches. Each one has their own canon law, their own hierarchy, own way of doing things. So the, what you do is you write a letter to the bishop of the church you're joining. So if you're becoming, say, Ukrainian Catholic, you'd write a letter to the Ukrainian Catholic bishop. And you'd explain your reasons for why you want to change over to that church. And you need a, a letter from the pastor as well, supporting you in that and saying he, that he believes you're ready. And if the bishop decides that this is a good thing, it's for your spiritual benefit, um, he will then exchange like uh, information with the Roman Catholic bishop, and they'll do an official transfer of papers. Once upon a time, this went through the Vatican, but not anymore. It's all done locally between the local bishops. Okay. And is it a pretty amicable process? Is it is it is it uh, arduous to to like with a lot of hoops to jump through? Or no, now some some pastors may want you to be attending their parish for a longer period of time. There are some who may want you to be there for two or three years before you officially you know change rights. Again, that's a colloquial term, but people call it that. Now, generally speaking, though, it's not difficult 
um, provided that both bishops are cooperative. There are some places, apparently, I've heard stories of where the Roman bishop will not allow anyone to switch. Um, huh. I'm not sure why, but I think that's pretty rare. Most are pretty amicable towards it. Now, the only times I've heard of people being outright rejected, I've known of cases of people who um, who wanting to go from Roman to Eastern Catholic. So they wrote a letter to the Eastern Catholic bishop in which they said they wanted to be Eastern Catholic, and then they went on a long list of everything they hated about the Roman rite. Oh. <laughs> and the Byzantine bishop gets that, and he reads this long list of everything they hate about the Roman rite, and he's like, I don't want this person. <laughs> and I don't think it even, get, even goes to the Roman bishop at that point. Basically, like, you're, no, you're, you're not changing rights. Um, it's just becoming toxic and you're airing your dirty laundry and everything like that. Right, right because now. he knows that you won't be happy in the Byzantine right either. You'll find something to complain about there also. Okay, interesting. You know, um, I, there are a lot of people that refer to the Catholic Church as the Roman Catholic Church, or they refer to Catholics as Roman Catholics. Mm-hmm. And there's this whole segment of Eastern Catholic, uh, Catholics. I, for me, you know, I'm a, I'm a Catholic convert, and mm-hmm. I had no idea that there were the, there was this thing. I was like, you mean Eastern Orthodox? So I would love if you could give like a 30,000-foot overview of what is Eastern Catholicism. Sure. So it really goes back to the Apostles. When the apostles spread the gospel and they spread local churches throughout the world, um, there were Christian churches established in the West and in the East. And as Christianity developed and evolved, uh, as the centuries went on, the the Eastern half of Christianity and the Western half of Christianity, while having the same common core, went in different directions on certain things, just differences because of culture and place. So the the Western tradition developed one way and the Eastern tradition developed another way, but both are equally Catholic and both are treated as equally Catholic by the Catholic Church. So uh, Eastern Catholics, our traditions come from the East. And when I say the East, I mean the Eastern half of what used to be the Roman Empire. So the term Byzantine Catholic refers to the tradition that came out of Constantinople. There used to be a great empire, the Byzantine Empire. It was really the Eastern Roman Empire. And a tradition developed there in Hagia Sophia, and that became known as the Byzantine tradition, or the Byzantine Rite, it's called. And then it spread to other places like Ukraine or um, you know parts of Hungary and, and uh, even parts of Russia. So what happened was the, the Byzantine Rite took on different flavors in different countries, and that's why you have things like Ukrainian Catholics or Melkite Catholics. And this is important for me to, to distinguish. There's the term right, and there's the term church. So first of all, there's the Catholic Church as a whole, and it's a communion of 24 what are called sui juris churches, 24 self-governing churches. Yeah, that's what the term means, sui juris, like self-headed, self-governing. And of those 24 churches, the largest is the Latin Church. That's the official name of the Roman Catholic Church, is the Latin Church. But among these 24 churches, they use different rites. And the term rite refers to the worship, but also the way the sacraments are administered and the theological tradition. So you may have uh, 24 churches, but there only are seven or eight rites, depending on how you count them. So the Byzantine rite is used by many different uh, Catholic churches. It's used by the Ukrainian Catholic Church, which is the second largest next to the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, the Melkite Church, the Romanian Church, 
course, there are others that are slipping my mind at the moment, but there are uh, the Ruthenian church, but there are numerous different uh, Eastern Catholic churches that use the same Byzantine rite. And then there are other rites as well, like the Maronite rite, which came out of Lebanon. You know, there was a Syriac rite, rite an Ethiopian, a Coptic rite, and many, many others. Uh, now, the Latin church, which is the official name of the Roman Catholic church, is the only one that uses the Roman rite. And the Roman rite developed in the city of, of Rome, obviously in the church of Rome. So when people use the term Roman Catholic, it really only appropriately refers to the Latin church because it's the only church that uses the Roman rite. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, when uh, I know you wrote an article recently on your blog about you know why you're Eastern Catholic instead of Eastern Orthodox, I'd love for you to you know do I'm sh I'm sure you probably get that question like why are you Eastern Catholic and not Eastern Orthodox? I get it all the time. So the Eastern Orthodox tradition and the Eastern the Byzantine Catholic tradition, mine, are identical. I mean, we're almost completely identical with a few different differences, mostly dealing with different regions in the world, you know, customs developing differently. But for the most part, you can't tell us apart, except for the fact that we pray for the Pope. But what makes oh. us different is we are in union with the Catholic Church. Um, we are in union with the Pope and the other Eastern Catholic churches. Now, the Eastern Orthodox Church, like I said, they're identical to us in almost every way, but they're not in communion with the Catholic Church. Uh, they they were not reconciled with with Rome. Now, why am I Eastern Catholic rather than Eastern Orthodox? Well, I want to begin by saying I love the Eastern Orthodox Church. I love the Eastern Orthodox tradition. Really, it's my tradition too. Um, but I want to be in union with Rome because I believe it's important. Uh, I believe that the papacy, for better or for worse, was established by Christ for a reason. And it's meant to be a principle of unity that binds together the people of God. So in the Catholic Church, we have a variety of different types of Catholics. Like I said, there are Byzantine Catholics, Maronite Catholics, Coptic Catholics, Armenian Catholics. The list goes on and on and on. And they all do things differently. But they're all united as one church, with the Pope of Rome serving as the guardian of unity. If you go to the Eastern Orthodox world, it's a little bit different. Um, because there is no Pope or anyone with that level of authority to unify the church, uh, it tends to be very monolithically Byzantine. And there tends to be very little tolerance for anything that's not Byzantine. So one of the reasons why I'm in communion with the Catholic Church is I want to be in communion with the Coptic Church and the Armenian Church and all those different traditions, because I think they're very important to the Catholic Church. But in the Byzantine Orthodox world, it's Byzantine or bust for the most part. There are some hmm. Western Orthodox churches that have been established, like in the United States, that use an older version of the Roman Rite, but they're barely tolerated and they're often derided by other Orthodox because there's a, a real prejudice for the Byzantine Rite in the Orthodox Church. So that's one of the things. I like liturgical diversity. I think that's important. But the other thing, too, is I believe that Christ came to found a church. He established a church. And the church that he established was meant to be a beacon, was meant to be a guidepost to guide us in the world. So when Christ ascended into heaven, we weren't left like children without a parent. We had a church there to be our mother and our guide. I believe very strongly that had to happen. That was necessary. We needed that guide. Well, in the Eastern Orthodox world, the highest authority is an ecumenical council. 
that's the highest authority. Uh, they don't have a pope. Only an ecumenical council can really resolve things uh, definitively. The problem is they've been unable to hold an ecumenical council since the seventh one. Um, so for those who aren't familiar with the history, the Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches were all one church. But then later on, it's often dated to say the um, 11th century, there was a split between the Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox. Although really, it, it didn't really happen all at once. It was more of a gradual thing over the centuries. But ever since then, the Eastern Orthodox Church has never been able to hold anything akin to an ecumenical council. They can't seem to do it. Uh, they were working towards a great and holy council a few years ago where all the Orthodox churches would be represented. And half of them, or many of them did not show up because of different disputes they were having with one another. Hmm. And right now, the Eastern Orthodox Church, God bless them, is in the middle of a big schism between Rome and Moscow. I mean, not Rome, oh, sorry, Constantinople. I said Rome because it's often called New Rome because it was the new capital of the Byzantine Empire or the Roman Empire. But Constantinople and Moscow are in the midst of a schism where they've essentially excommunicated one another. So they're not even in communion with each other at the moment. So getting back to the idea of there being a mother, a guide, a teacher, the church that Christ established has to be able to engage the world because the world isn't stagnant. The world has changed a lot since the Seventh Ecumenical Council. And to be able to engage the world, you need to have an authority that can do that. Um, and if you're not able to even hold an ecumenical council, you're kind of stuck in time. You're frozen in time on certain things. And I have a problem with that because I think there are things that need to be addressed in the modern world and you need some sort of living church, living in the sense that it can, it can engage the world and it can talk to the world with authority. But if you say that the only authority is an ecumenical council, or that's the highest authority, and you can't have one, it, it becomes very hard to engage changes in the world. Hmm. Yeah, I, I've often heard one of the one of the critiques from the the Catholic side of things is that Eastern Orthodox, the Eastern Orthodox Church is kind of stuck in time because they haven't been able to to um, to call an ecumenical council. And I asked some Eastern Orthodox about this. I said, "Is is this a fair assessment?" You know, and and like, can you call a council? And I got like 30 different answers. And I, I was, I think it was more confused than when I started. It just seemed like there was like, we can, but we haven't, or it would need this, that, and the other, and it wouldn't happen because of this. And, and so it just seemed, um, yeah, it seemed really complicated for sure. Yeah. And I want to be clear. I love the Eastern Orthodox churches. I love Eastern Orthodox Christians. For the most part, they're wonderful people. Um, but I, I do think that they're lacking that principle of unity. Um, that the papacy provides. And the papacy, again, for better or for worse, is an authority. You know, it's an ultimate authority within Catholicism. And you need something like that in order to, in order to be able to move forward. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I'd love to know what you think draws people to Eastern Catholicism. Well, part of it is uh, we do hearken back in time. You know, the idea of being stuck in time, on one hand, is problematic from, say, an ethical, moral perspective. But on the other hand, people are looking for tradition. Uh, I think today people more and more want to find something with ancient roots so they can latch onto and, and kind of dig into, so to speak, and make their own. And the Eastern 
Christian tradition, whether Catholic or Orthodox, is very, very rich in ancient traditions, ancient customs that have tremendous symbolic value. And if somebody's looking for something that, that's old, something that has roots, something that's firm, it, it draws people in for that reason. But even more than that, the Eastern Christian tradition has a great sense of transcendence, especially transcendence in liturgy. So what happens is when we come together to worship, we believe that we're uniting with a heavenly worship. In the Bible, we get different glimpses of heaven. Uh, for example, the book of Revelation. And what John the Apostle sees in Revelation in heaven isn't a bunch of people laying around wearing robes, playing harps. He sees people gathered around the throne of God worshiping. There are angels, there are martyrs, the saints, gathered around God's throne, gathered around a heavenly altar engaged in worship. So there's a liturgy, a worship service taking place in heaven throughout all eternity. When we gather to worship God on earth, we're plugging into that worship in heaven. In the Byzantine rite, which is the rite that my church uses, we really emphasize that. And our whole liturgy is designed to evoke the feeling of entering another world. When people attend our churches for the first time, they're usually confused and say, wow, that was really different. It was like being a different country or a different world. Well, that's intentional. It's meant to pull you out of this world and make you feel you're someplace different. Uh, it's meant to evoke the feeling of being in heaven or connected to heaven. And that feeling of transcendence is awesome. That's what drew me in. You know, as a little kid, going to these liturgies and witnessing this transcendent worship, it spoke to me on some level and I, I just couldn't shake it. Um, and again, I, I still love the Roman mass, the Roman tradition. I think it's awesome. But for me, that transcendence of the Byzantine rite really evoked something. And I, I just could not stop thinking about it. So I yeah, think that's, that's a big that, thing. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no. That's a big thing that draws people. Uh, that that was something that really stood out for me. I was always into the Jewish roots of Christianity, and uh, you know, and Jesus says, "Do this in in remembrance of me." And I read something from uh, an observant uh, uh, Jew who was the he was the uh, editor of, and I forget the magazine, but he he said the purpose of Jewish liturgy is to basically bend time and space, you know, to make uh, contemporaries of those. Um, who who lived, you know, thousands of years ago. And um, we become neighbors, you know, in a sense, and and we enter into the story. And I thought about that because, you know, I often will, will every year we'll lead a um, a Passover Seder in my home and we talk about the, the Christian tradition. And wh whenever you attend a Passover Seder, it's that it's, it's when we were slaves in Egypt, when God did this for us kind of thing. And it, it used that first person um, and you enter that story. And so that really opened my eyes to, to Catholicism and, oh yeah, this is, we're stepping out of time and space and we're joining something that's transcendent. So I really, I really appreciate that perspective. That's a great example. Exactly. In the Passover Seder, you're reliving the past, you're plugging into the past. We're doing the same thing. Uh, Although we're plugging into heaven, yeah, totally. Um, what are what are some of the challenges of being Eastern Catholic in a predominantly Roman Catholic church? Is it is it ever? Hey, I'm I'm here, guys. You know, is there a, is there a bit of that? It's a pretty common occurrence. I'll be frank with you; it's not easy being Eastern Catholic sometimes. Now there there are places in the world where Eastern Catholics are in the majority. 
um, you know, if you go to Ukraine, for example, certain parts of the Middle East, years back, I met a, a woman from uh, the Middle East, and she was from a country where the Catholics were almost all Eastern Catholic and Roman Catholics were the minority. Hmm. So that, and and it was funny because where she was from, when people said Catholic, they meant Byzantine Catholic and Roman Catholics were called Romans. Uh because in their minds, Catholic equaled Eastern Catholic. That's what they knew. Um, but in general, the Eastern Catholic churches are much smaller than the Roman Catholic church. And in the United States, we're a minority, much smaller minority. So one thing that happens is that people don't know that we exist. And sometimes we have a hard time convincing Roman Catholics that we're actually Catholic. That happens. Um, okay, here's a story. A few years back, my church was hosting like a, a festival type event and myself and the other deacon in my parish were giving tours of the church and a lot of Roman Catholics were coming and we were showing them the church and explaining things. I had to leave. I had to be somewhere, but the other deacon was giving a tour and on the tour, there was a, an older couple, husband and wife who were Roman Catholic and he was showing them around our church. And he was explaining things about the church and he took them, uh, he told them, you know, that we are Catholic, that we have, you know, the same core beliefs, the same seven sacraments, and that we have the same Pope, Pope Francis. And the lady said, oh, your Pope is named Francis. Our Pope is named Francis too. And he <laughs> said, no, it's, it's the same Pope, but she, she couldn't quite grasp that. And then later on, he took them into the vestibule and we have on the wall, a picture of our bishop, a picture of our patriarch, a bishop, and a picture of Pope Francis. And he pointed this out and he made a point of saying, that's, of course, our Holy Father, Pope Francis. And she said, wow, he looks so much like our Pope Francis. She just couldn't get it. <laughs> then later on, he was explaining about our traditions and some of the things we do differently. And one thing we do differently is we often ordain married men as priests. That's pretty normal for us. And she, he was explaining that. And then she said, can God bless her? I wish our Pope Francis allowed for married priests. <laughs> it was, it, she just could not grasp the fact that we were also Catholic. Now, that's an extreme example, but that's not uncommon with what we face. Um, right. And there's misunderstandings too. Uh, so, okay. This is a pet peeve of many Eastern Catholics. Um, an Eastern Catholic priest, a, a close friend of mine, posted about this on social media a few days ago, there was an article that came out talking about some of the great dangers, you know, facing Catholicism. And there's a lot of fear surrounding the Synod in Rome. And I'm not mm -hmm. personally very afraid of it, but I think there's a lot of fear, misunderstanding surrounding it. And in the article, it was saying how we have to be careful that there is a progressive, uh, progressive faction in the Vatican and in the church. And they want to push forth, uh, you know, things such as homosexual marriage, women priests, and married priests. Again, they, they kind of put that in there, right? It's something that's anti-Catholic and antithetical to the faith. Remember one time I saw an article in a Catholic newspaper, and, and in it they were talking about uh, how we as Catholics must stand strong against great evils, such as women priests, um, transgenderism, uh, homosexual agenda, abortion, and married priests. Well, we've got literally thousands of married Catholic priests in the <laughs> Eastern Catholic churches. We've got thousands of them. 
And they're, in my experience, good, holy priests, and they don't really deserve to be lumped together with abortion and transgenderism. <laughs> um, and if you look at actual Catholic teaching, the, the Roman Catholic Church has a discipline of celibacy for priests, but it's a discipline. It's not something that's doctrine. But if you look at the catechism of the Catholic Church and the documents of the Church, it says that our tradition is equally valid. That's actually Catholic teaching, that our tradition is equally valid and that our married priests are to be held in respect. So people forget that, and they tend to look at our tradition as being something vile that's anti-Catholic, when really it's just the way Catholicism developed in the East. And not to mention, there are, if I understand it correctly, there are examples of priests in the Roman Rite that are also married. Um, they've yeah. petitioned the Vatican. Um, usually, I think they come from maybe the Anglican tradition or something like that, um, and they've come over into the Catholic Church. I've known several, several. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, what are some practical ways that um, the Roman Catholic community can it uh, can embrace the Eastern Catholic community in in your um, opinion? Well, it, it can be challenging. Uh, just the lack of education on this is pretty stunning. But I think one thing that'd be awesome is if they taught about us in RCIA classes. Hmm. I cannot tell you how many times I've met people like like you who are converts from other Christian traditions who went through RCIA and never heard that the Catholic Church is a communion of churches. So there are 24 different Catholic churches. They never even knew that. And that's sad because the Eastern tradition is just as much a part of the Catholic Church as the Western is, and the two kind of need each other. Uh, Pope John Paul II wrote beautifully about this in the document uh, encyclical Oriental Lumen, The Light of the East. And he said in there that the Catholic Church has two lungs, the Eastern tradition and the Western tradition. And to be healthy, it needs to breathe with both. If only one lung dominates and the other lung is barely functioning or is ignored, that's not a healthy body. It needs both. So I, I think it's unfortunate that the existence of a whole section of the Catholic Church is just left out of most RCIA programs. I think that alone would make a big difference. Hmm. Well, that uh, that speaks to me because I I help teach RCIA, so I will be sure to include it in awesome. when I awesome. teach. So Out of curiosity, when you went through RCIA, uh, I assume you did. Mm -hmm. did. Did they mention anything about Eastern Catholics at all? I'm trying to remember if they did. I had heard about it um, because I had heard about it early in the East, in my RCIA process when I kind of I mentioned that. Um, I was in, involved in the Coming Home Network, and I said, I, I'm becoming Roman Catholic, and I'm, I'm nervous about this. And, and someone corrected me, and, and then I kind of dug into it and was asking questions. And, and then, uh, then I, and that really actually um, affirmed my decision to become Catholic rather than Orthodox, because I was like, I was one of the things I was really looking for was I was looking for unity. I'm coming from the um, the more evangelical tradition. There is really no unity churches are very independent and so the eastern the the whole idea of oh wait all of these churches have been coming back into communion or you know it's it's not an easter or east or a west thing it's a both thing really spoke to me so i can't i can't quite remember if we talked specifically about eastern catholic churches in rcia but i will certainly make a point to do that awesome we appreciate that that alone <laughs> makes a big difference yeah. And, and this, you know, and, and doing this podcast too, like I, 
I was really looking forward to the to the episode about Eastern Catholicism and um and I've you know and I I really want to make an effort to bring on um different priests from different uh different Eastern traditions as well because I just think it's so beautiful. I think it just speaks to the the diversity and that unity that still can be had in that diversity. It, it shows that we're really Catholic. Mm-hmm. Catholic is universal. And, you know, if everyone does everything the same way and you're excluding a whole portion of Christian tradition, are you really universal? Right. Right. Yeah. Or if you're limited to, to specific borders or things like that. Yes. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what is the relationship like between the Eastern Catholic church and the Western or in the Eastern Orthodox churches? Well, that's a little, a little strange. And I'll tell you why. I'll, I'll share with you my personal experience. In my personal experience, the Eastern Orthodox Christians that I know in person and interact with are wonderful people and we get along great. Um, there's an Eastern Orthodox Church not too far from my parish, maybe five miles away, and their parishioners will sometimes visit our church. Um, we'll actually give them communion. They're welcome to receive communion in the Catholic Church, and we're great. We get along awesomely. You know, I've multiple friends that are Eastern Orthodox deacons and Eastern Orthodox priests. We get along wonderfully. But then when I go on the internet, the Eastern Orthodox I encounter on there are, are vicious. <laughs> they're vicious. And they're just filled with hatred, not just for Catholicism, but for everything Western. There's like mm. an anti-Western hatred there. And mm. those seem to be the loudest voices on the internet. I remember one time I, I was invited to join this ecumenical discussion group for uh, Catholics, Protestants, and Orthodox in Dialogue. I, I think I've joined that same group. Is that on Facebook? Yes. I, yeah. the, uh, the Actually, the, the guy who started it reached out to me and asked me to join. He went into an Eastern Catholic perspective. So I said, sure, I'll be happy to join. And I joined. And holy smokes, the people there were the worst representations of Eastern Orthodoxy you could possibly imagine. All they did was condemn everyone else, judge everyone else, and tell everyone else that they were wrong and how right they were and how we all had to join their church. And I said to the the administrator of the group, and I eventually left it. I left it. I couldn't take it after a while. I said to him, you know, if I didn't know Orthodox Christians in real life, I would think they were the most hateful monsters in the world. Because the level of hatred I experienced there was just shocking. It was shocking. And I get it all the time. I make videos with uh, like Reason and Theology with Michael Lofton and William Albrecht and stuff. And I get comments on there from Orthodox Christians that are, are just vile and hate-filled. And meanwhile, in real life, I have Orthodox priests I go out to lunch with, and they're my buddies. I go to the movies right. with Orthodox priests. So it's just, it's such a weird dichotomy I'm not sure what's going on online, but my impression is a lot of new converts are coming in and mm. they're bringing a lot of anti-Catholic baggage with them. And I think mm. many of them just reject the West in principle as being corrupt and, and lost beyond all redemption. And they see us Eastern Catholics as, as traitors who have gone uh, along same. with, with the, the wicked evil West. I remember uh, one of the videos I made for Reason and Theology, you know, I was talking about Eastern Catholicism. And there was a comment in there made by an Orthodox Christian, and it was a comment about me. And he said that I am the sad face of apostasy. I'm the sad mm. face of apostasy. And some of my friends saw that, and my wife saw that, and they thought that was really funny. And that became uh, my my nickname. I'm the sad face of apostasy. <laughs> 
So whenever I'm making videos, my wife tells me to be sure to smile so I'm not the sad face of apostasy. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, that that forum, I think I, I finally snoozed it because I was like, oh, this is great. Like peaceful die. I think it's even called peaceful dialogue or something like that. Yeah. And I joined on and I was like, whoa, this is a train wreck. <laughs> like it was, Did you witness it some was, of the, uh, the the vicious Orthodox posts? Yeah, I did. And I that was where I asked the question. I was like, I would love an Eastern Orthodox perspective about this comment, are you stuck in time kind of thing. And some of the posts, uh, some of the responses were very charitable and really helpful. And some were just like really attacking. And I was, I was just, I was kind of, I was, that was my impression. The same thing that you're saying, that was my impression. I was like, uh, oh, like they hate Catholics. Like this, <laughs> this is, this is, uh, this is really toxic. And, and ha- they, I, ha- hatred is the right word. That's that's the feeling I got. It was actual hatred, just seething with rage in some of mm-hmm. those posts. I'm like, man, that's not my experience in real life at all. Yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe maybe sometimes Facebook brings out the worst in people. I guess I don't know. It, it must. It must. But <laughs> again, the Orthodox Christians I know don't even think that way. But I think what's going on is there's this contingent of of radical anti-Western, almost like fundamentalist uh, convert zealots, mm-hmm. who who have made the online world their place, where they push a version of orthodoxy that does not line up with what orthodoxy actually is. Hmm. Yeah. What um, you know, when I was talking to uh, Father Colin Nunes, he was telling me that the Melkite Catholic Melkite Greek Catholic Church, it, their sister church in the Orthodox Union is the Antiochian Orthodox Church. Yes. Um, and is there something like that with the Ukrainian uh, Ukrainian Catholic Church? Uh, yes, yes. So the situation is different historically. You know, every Eastern Catholic Church has a different story. Um, with the the Melkites, uh, there was like a split that took place in the Antiochian Orthodox Church where some went into communion with the Romans, some didn't. And that be- those became the Melkites. Um, so there's a history there where they were one church that kind of split. So that's their sister church. And in the Middle East, my understanding is the relationship between the Antiochian Orthodox and the Melkites is very strong. They get along great. Um, from what I've read, they go to each other's churches pretty regularly. Uh, in the Middle East, the difference between Catholic and Orthodox isn't as accentuated because when you're being persecuted by anti-Catholic Islamic fundamentalists, the differences between us kind of melt away. Mm-hmm. Um, now with the Ukrainian Catholic church, historically our situation is a bit different because what happened is there was a union called the union of breast and rather than it being like a split, so let's say there was a Ukrainian Orthodox Church and it split and half became Catholic, half stayed Orthodox. That's not what happened in our case. In our case, there was an ancient church of, of Kiev. So, you know, Kiev is where um, Christianity first spread to that part of Eastern Europe um, through St. Vladimir. You may know the story. You're familiar with the story of St. Vladimir, the ambassador? I'm not. I'm okay, not. This, this is interesting. So uh, Vladimir... Prince Vladimir, or Voldemir, depending on how you pronounce it, he was the ruler of Kiev. And they were pagan. They were pagan. But he he was drawn towards monotheism. And he was looking for a monotheistic religion to bring to his people. 
So he sent out ambassadors to different places. Uh, he sent some out to the Western Europe to visit you know, the Roman Catholic churches. He sent some to be among the Jews. He sent some to visit Islamic countries. And he sent some to Constantinople, the Byzantine Empire. And the ones who went to Constantinople, they walked into Hagia Sophia, which was this great, glorious church. Uh, it was the church where, for example, St. John Chrysostom you know, was patriarch. And mm -hmm. they went in there, and there was this amazing liturgy going on. And they wrote back to St. Vladimir and said, we don't know. We, we were so amazed by what we saw. We didn't know if we were in heaven or earth. Mm. And that, that spoke to him, right? He wanted to learn more about this. He asked for missionaries to be sent up. And eventually uh, he became, you know, Eastern Christian in the Byzantine tradition. And his whole nation followed. He's known as St. Vladimir. Mm. So that's really where Christianity took root there. So the Church of Kiev is kind of like the mother church of the church in, in Russia, for instance. It all came from there in that part mm -hmm. of the world. Now, St. Cyril Methodius, they went uh, you know, in a different direction. Uh, the Ruthenian church was really established by them. But the Ukrainian church uh, goes back to the situation with Vladimir and Kiev. But what happened centuries later was, uh, well, there was a split, of course, the schism. Mm -hmm. But when the schism happened, the schism of 1054, as is often dated, was really the Patriarch of Rome excommunicating the Patriarch of Constantinople and vice versa, it didn't necessarily affect everyone else. Um, what I mean by that is if the Patriarch of Constantinople broke off communion with Rome, that didn't mean that the rest of the East did. But it gradually trickled around. And the Crusades actually spread a lot of this because when the Crusades happened, um, the Crusaders would go into an Eastern, you know, an Eastern Middle Eastern country where there are Eastern Christians there and the bishops weren't necessarily, in their minds, out of communion with Rome. They just didn't have any contact with Rome. But the Crusaders would show up and then establish a rival Roman Catholic bishop. And that made mm -hmm. the schism real because he had rival altars at that point. Mm -hmm. But the Church of Kiev never actively saw itself as being out of communion with Rome. In their minds, they were trying to be in communion with both Rome and Constantinople because Constantinople was their mother church. Um, so there was never a sense that they were like definitively not in communion with Rome. They, they tried to maintain not a dual communion, at least not a conscious lack of communion, if you know what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. yeah. But at a certain point in time, there was a movement where they wanted to be in communion with Rome again. And most of the bishops of the Church of Kiev, what we'd call the Ukrainian church, uh, most of them as a, a body entered in communion with Rome. So one could argue that the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church is the original church of Kiev. And there are people who, who've written books, you know, in my mind proving it. I think it's pretty definitive, but some Orthodox people would, would strongly dispute this. Um, but it appears there was most of the bishops, if not the vast majority, as a body entered communion with Rome. So you had this Eastern Christian church, the, the church of Kiev, the Ukrainian church, that as a body, for the most part, reestablished communion with Rome. But then what happened was there were a few bishops who resisted. And then after that happened, uh, Moscow began sending missionaries to establish a true Orthodox church of Ukraine. So what the Orthodox who came 
to Ukraine actually came later after most of Ukraine had reestablished communion with Rome. So it's not quite the same thing as one church that split. It's more like one church almost as a whole entered communion with Rome and then a new rival church was created from the outside. Um, that being said, in Ukraine, there are there's an Orthodox church that is under Constantinople and we have an extremely good relationship with them. I would say they'd be the closest thing we have to a sister church. Um, mm. But you also have an, in Ukraine a, another Orthodox church, a rival Orthodox church that's under Moscow. And their relationship with us is pretty pretty poor for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. I, I know that the there was a... Uh, like one of the reasons why the Russian Orthodox, if I understand this correctly, one of the reasons why the Russian Orthodox Church is breaking away from the communion with the Eastern Orthodox Church is because the the uh, Patriarch of Constantinople acknowledged the Ukrainian Orthodox Church as a separate entity. Is that is that yes. correct? Yes. Okay. So that, that's the church we have a good relationship with. We have a great relationship with them. Mm -hmm. I mean, their their bishops are friends with our bishops. Uh, I mean, we get along great. There's no, there's no ill will there at all, none. Um, but that really upset the Patriarch of Moscow because going back in history, Christianity in that region all started in Kiev. So Kiev really is the mother church. It's mm -hmm. the mother church of Moscow when you think about it. But Moscow wants to be the mother church. They want to claim that they're the, they're the true church, and the fact that. Kiev, the city of such great historical significance to them, is not part of their of their patriarchate, not part of their nation. Uh, it, it, it bothers them to no end. Bothers them to mm -hmm. no end. But uh, what happened was there was a period of time in which Russia, as the Soviet Union, controlled Ukraine, and they outlawed Eastern Catholicism, and they forced all of the Orthodox to be under the Moscow Patriarchate. Okay. So basically all the Orthodox churches in Ukraine had to be Russian Orthodox churches. And us Eastern Catholics were driven underground. Well, when the Soviet Union fell, Eastern Catholicism reemerged. They, they, they had declared us dead. They said, we've been eliminated. Well, we came back in bigger numbers than ever. Mm. And a lot of the Orthodox churches did not want to be in communion with Moscow. They wanted to be independent of Moscow. So there is a big battle there between those Orthodox churches that stayed loyal to Moscow and those who wanted to not be in communion with Moscow. Um, and the groups, the group that stayed out of communion with Moscow that resisted it, they kind of functioned in a quasi-canonical state for decades where they were Orthodox churches, they had valid sacraments, they had bishops, but they, they, they had no real patriarch. They were kind of just floating on their own because they refused to submit to Moscow. Well, they petitioned the ecumenical patriarch because really the ecumenical patriarch has much more of a claim to be the mother church than Moscow does. I mean, the ecumenical patriarch is in Constantinople is who sent the missionaries. It mm -hmm. was the mother church, not Moscow. So the ecumenical patriarch of Constantinople um, released what's called a tomos, an official declaration establishing an independent Ukrainian Orthodox Church that is not in communion with Mo not not I don't mean not in communion but not submissive not submitting to Moscow and that infuriated the Patriarch of Moscow because he insisted that only he had the right to oversee Christianity in Ukraine 
Hmm. Man, when you when you hear this, it it almost it, it sheds a lot of context on the current conflict between uh, Russia and Ukraine, and uh, and it's really you know I I I you know I remember when Vladimir Putin you know gave his sort of explanation as to why they should invade invade Ukraine and and uh, yeah I I I'm, I'm curious your your take on that. How much of it is related in this kind of in this ecclesiastical history? It's deeply related, deeply related, because like I said before, the fact that Kiev, the, the city which really is the roots of Christianity in that, in that part of the world, is not under Russia's control, infuriates Putin. He wants mm. that city. He wants that city. And the fact that there's a, an Orthodox church functioning in Ukraine that's not submitting to Moscow also infuriates the Russian Orthodox. Um, so I think that's part of the motivation. I mean, ultimately what it comes down to is that Russia insists that Ukraine is their territory. It's theirs. Um, historically, it doesn't work that way, but they've been trying to rewrite history. Um, so that's a big part of what's going on there. On the other hand, though, I do want to uh, put out a little word of caution here to our, our Catholic listeners. One trend that's been really saddening me over the past year or so is it's become very trendy among traditional conservative Catholics to actually root for Russia to win. I'm seeing this a lot lately. And mm. uh, either to root for Russia to win or to say, well, it'd be better if, if we just let, you know, let Russia have Ukraine. What they don't realize is that Russia does not believe in religious freedom. Putin does not believe in religious freedom. So those parts of Ukraine that they've managed to take, the first thing they've done, first thing they did when they took those territories was outlaw Catholicism. And they rounded up the Catholic clergy and kidnapped them. I mean, there are Catholic priests who've been missing for months or a year or you know, over to a year now who were kidnapped by Russia when Russia took their territories. Um, I don't think most conservative Catholics who are rooting for Russia are aware of that fact that once they take a territory, they outlaw Catholicism and they kidnap the priests. Um, hmm. People need to be aware of that. Yes, I mean, all the way back from, you know, the USSR and Vladimir Putin's days in the KGB. And yes. um, it seems just like a playbook of repeating that that pattern of behavior. That's that's what they did last time they had control of Ukraine, they outlawed Catholicism. Um, so if I had a, a discussion online with a, a, a Catholic person, uh, a person like you who was a, a Protestant minister who became Catholic, and he was actively, you know, saying that it'd be better if we just let Russia have Ukraine, how much better it would be for everybody. And I explained to him, I said, listen, if they get if they get Ukraine, the Catholic Church there will go underground again, like we did before. And there'll be martyrdoms, there'll be persecution. His response kind of disappointed me. His response was, well, maybe that persecution will help the church to grow. That was his response, mm. which I, I found rather insensitive. Yeah, for sure. Uh, why do you think people are, 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 if you don't mind me asking, like why I, I, I personally haven't heard that about, about wanting Russia to win and, and take Ukraine. Um, why do, why do you think that people feel that way? Well, this fellow that I mentioned, one of the things he said would, was that if Russia took Ukraine, that put a stop to gay pride parades in Ukraine. Hmm. 
And I think what it is, is they they see Putin as a, a champion of moral values against the corrupt West. Uh, and he hmm. positions himself like that, you know? Um, so they believe that our Western culture is promoting things like transgenderism, the homosexual agenda, abortion. And they see Putin as being a, a strong um, bulwark against that kind of corruption because Putin presents himself that way. Hmm. But the reality is um, Putin, he's using that very strategically to bring allies to his side. But if you look at what's going on in Russia, really, I mean, abortion is primarily birth control in Russia. He has the authority. He could outlaw abortion, but he hasn't. Hmm. He won't do it. Um, as for, far as his objections are to homosexuality and the LGBTQ agenda and transgenderism, well, maybe he actually believes in that. Maybe he doesn't. But it's been very politically advantageous to him in winning allies. Hmm. I see. Well, you know, um, what is you have your mother church is is in a in a flex of war currently, and uh, what is that relationship like? Are you are you still in constant communion with um, with the bishop in in Kiev, and you know how like. How is that dynamic um, since you guys have have been attacked? Well, uh, our bishop in Kiev, um, our patriarch, Svetoslav, he's a brave guy. When the invasion began, he was informed of something. He was informed that Putin had a list of political enemies who were to be apprehended. And he was told that he was on the list. He was on the list as actually was our archbishop in Philadelphia. He was on the list too, because mm. he goes to Ukraine Easy. very frequently, uh, Archbishop Boris Guziak. But they were both on the list of, of people to be captured, to be apprehended as enemies of Russia. Basically, it was a hit list. Mm -hmm. But our patriarch said, I will not leave my people in Kiev. He would not leave. So he went underground, literally underground, like into a bunker, and he hunkered down there. And actually, for quite a bit of time, he was sharing the bunker with the Orthodox uh, bishop, mm -hmm. the one who's not in communion with Moscow, obviously. And right. the two of them were together, praying together, because, mm -hmm. um, I mean, they're brothers in the sense that we're the same tradition, the same church, and we're facing persecution from the same common enemy. Um, so he stayed there. But thankfully, with uh, technological advances, with the internet, we're still in constant communication with him, hmm. and we, you know, we hear from him very regularly. And he he travels; he can come and go. Thankfully, uh, you know, Kiev it gets attacked, but it's still possible to come and go. I believe he's in Rome right now for the synod, actually. Hmm. But yeah, we're my bishop, uh, my bishop, Bishop Bodon Danilo, awesome guy, awesome guy. He's in constant contact with the patriarch over in Ukraine. Hmm. What um, I, I would love to hear, like, what why you chose uh, out of you know the Eastern Catholic tradition? Why did you choose to become Ukrainian Catholic? Well, it, it was the Byzantine rite that that spoke to me as a kid. Mm -hmm. Now, the Byzantine church I went to a kid went to as a kid was part of the Ruthenian Byzantine Catholic tradition, the Archieparchy of Pittsburgh, and. Again, I loved it. I fell in love with it. 
but there are other types of Byzantine Catholics. You know, again, Ukrainians, Romanians, Melkites, Romain. Oh, I think there are others. But that was the one locally was the Ruthenian. And then when I officially changed rights, I actually joined the Ruthenian Church, not the Ukrainian Church. Okay. Because again, I, I love it. I still love it. Love the Byzantine rite. But what happened was this. So my wife and I got married. My wife has been Byzantine Catholic her entire life. She grew up Byzantine Catholic from the Ruthenian tradition. And um, we moved to a new town, the town where we currently live. And where we live, there is a Ukrainian church five minutes away. And it's it's very, very close. So we decided to go visit it. I mean, we could drive a, a longer distance and go to a Ruthenian parish, which again, we love. We visited this Ukrainian church and it felt like home. Um, the people there were, were awesome, wonderful community, phenomenal, phenomenal uh, youth, youth ministry for the children and teenagers. I mean, it had everything we were looking for. The only thing is it wasn't Ruthenian, it was Ukrainian, which practically speaking meant the music was a little bit different. <laughs> Otherwise, it was exactly the same. The music was a little bit different, but it was exactly the same. So we ended up joining that parish um, because it's Byzantine Catholic, right? It, it didn't make a lot of sense to to drive an extra 20 minutes to go someplace else where the music was more familiar to us when it's the same liturgy, the same, you know, administration of the sacraments, everything's identical. So um, for us, there was no, not a big change going from the Ruthenian to the Ukrainian parish, but we remained canonically Ruthenian uh, until, until one night I was laying in bed, ready to go to sleep. My wife leaned over to me and said, I think you should become a deacon. And she said that to me. And I said, you mean when the kids are grown up? She goes, no, right now. How about tomorrow you make some phone calls and figure out what you need to do? I'd been toying with the idea off and on <laughs> for years, but I wasn't going to act on it. Right. Honestly, if she hadn't done that, I would not be a deacon. I'd still be toying oh. with it in the back of my mind and probably would never do it. <clears throat> but she kind of pushed me. So the next day, I called up a friend of mine who'd been a, a deacon for a long, long time. Uh, he's actually a Ruthenian priest now, um, Father Daniel Dozier. Some people may know him who listen to your show. Is pretty well known on in the internet world. And at the time he'd been a deacon for like eight or nine years. And I called him to get advice as to what to do. And he said, well, as it happens right now, as we're talking, I'm driving in the car and I'm driving to meet with the director of deacon formation for your diocese, a park we call them in the East. Yeah. Um, let me talk to him about this. I'm like, okay, that was convenient. Wasn't it? Because he wasn't from my diocese, but he was driving to meet with the director of deacon formation for my diocese. So he called me up on the phone a few days later and said, well, they're starting a new class of deacon formation. It's going to be in three weeks and they want you there. So it just fell in place. But to do things the right way officially, I had to switch from Ruthenian to Ukrainian, which the bishop took care of. I mean, it basically... It wasn't a big deal. The bishop, uh, our bishop, contacted the Ruthenian bishop, and they understood the situation. It was no big deal. Um, it's the Byzantine world is a small world. We all kind of know each other, so it wasn't a problem. But if we had moved to a town where it was a Melkite church, we'd probably be Melkite right now. So, right. I personally don't get too focused on the differences 
between you know Ruthenian, Milkite, Romanian, Ukrainian. Uh, I appreciate the differences. I appreciate the different cultures. But the truth of the matter is, it's all really the same down deep. And I think that we do a disservice sometimes by dividing ourselves based upon you know Ukrainian versus Ruthenian. There are towns I know of where there's a struggling Ukrainian parish and there's a struggling Ruthenian parish. But if they came together, there'd be one really healthy parish. Right. Um, I think situations like that should be looked at in the future, but right now I can't do anything about that. Is it because of maybe the ethnicity of the of primary ethnicity of the group and they hold on to the Ukrainian roots or Ruthenian roots? So um, that used to be the issue. A um, hundred years ago, that was the issue. There were waves of Ukrainian immigrants and then Ruthenian immigrants. And at first, the Ruthenians and Ukrainians were kind of together in this country, uh, but they had fights, my understanding is, over music. Because the Ukrainian musical tradition is a little bit different than the Ruthenian. Yeah, they're different, but they're both beautiful in their own way. Um, so to stop the bickering, they were split up. They were split up. And that's why you'd have a town with a Ukrainian Catholic church and a Ruthenian Catholic church, you know, rivals across the street from each other. Uh, <laughs> Liturgy wars. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, and at that time, the people fighting were primarily immigrants who mm. were trying to hold on to their own culture. Well, here we are a hundred years later. I mean, we don't have any parishioners who are from Ukraine in my parish. We don't. Uh, mm. The only person from Ukraine is our pastor who is an American citizen and is not particularly you know, ethnocentric in any way. Um, most of the people in my parish, maybe be, maybe half have some Ukrainian heritage. My, my wife is ethnically Ukrainian because uh, a lot of the Ruthenian church is actually based in Ukraine, interestingly enough, because the borders were always shifting. Hmm. Um, but most of the people in my parish have no particular ethnic attachment to Ukraine but we love the tradition. As a matter of fact, if you go worldwide, you'll find Ukrainian Catholic parishes all over the world, and not everyone who goes there is Ukrainian. In many cases, only a minority are actually ethnically Ukrainian. Hmm. I, I put it this way. If you go to a Roman Catholic church, is everyone there Italian? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> if you go to a Ukrainian Catholic church, not everyone is Ukrainian. We, yeah, we cool. have the tradition from Ukraine. We have the music from Ukraine. Basically, it's the Byzantine tradition filtered through the Ukrainian tradition. Mm. Um, but that doesn't define who we are ethnically. Um, our patriarch says that we are a worldwide church for people of all racial backgrounds. And we have priests, we have clergy, we have monks from all racial backgrounds. Mm. I mean, in my in my diocese, I have a fellow deacon who's uh, Asian, right? I've There are Asian Ukrainian Catholic priests. Um, mm. You, you talked with Father Colin, right? Father Colin is a priest in the Melkite church. He's not Middle Eastern. No, it's um, from Malaysia originally. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's a pretty non-ethnic situation. Now, there are Ukrainian Catholic parishes that are more ethnic, but those tend to be certain ones in certain cities where they're still getting waves of new immigrants. So if you have a wave of immigrants coming in, who cannot speak English, oftentimes they'll gravitate towards one parish and that parish will do things in Ukrainian because that's the language that people understand. And that's awesome. You know, that's 
great that they have that. Um, but most of the parishes that are not in those locations uh, aren't especially ethnic in any way. I have one last question for you. Is that okay? Sure, sure. All right. So if someone's attending, let's say someone like me, a Roman Catholic, is attending a Ukrainian Catholic church, what are some of the differences that they would see and experience in the liturgy? Well, probably the first thing you'd notice is um, you walk in and there are icons all over the place. We have a, a, a barrier, so to speak, call it an icon screen. Um, ever see one of those? I have not seen one in person, just on, mm. yeah, on videos. So it's almost like uh, a wall or a screen covered in icons with doors that open up during liturgy. And what it does is it kind of separates, you know, the altar area from the rest of the church. It mm-hmm. harkens back to Judaism where they had the screen separating mm-hmm. the Holy of Holies. Okay. It's just like that. And we have it covered in icons uh, to remind us that when we worship God, we're not doing so alone, that we're plugging into the worship in heaven with the angels and saints. So the whole church is typically full of icons of angels and saints all over the place to remind us that they're with us. We're all together when we worship God. So that's the first thing you'd notice. You may also notice that um, we don't typically kneel um, during the liturgy. And we've had people who show up at some of our churches and they're like, you guys are like really irreverent. You're not kneeling for the Eucharist. Well, in the Byzantine tradition, standing is a greater sign of reverence than kneeling is. Hmm. We will kneel as a sign of penance. So there are certain times where we will kneel for as a sign of penance. But when we're showing respect and reverence, uh, we stand. So that's one difference people often notice. They also notice that we sing everything. Um, our liturgy is sung from beginning to end. We even sing the scripture readings most of the time. So everything is sung and we have no musical instruments. We don't use an organ. We don't use guitars. We do everything a cappella because when we have those glimpses of heaven in, in the Bible, uh, there are no musical instruments depicted. Everyone is mm. singing. So we have everything a cappella for that reason. We're trying to recreate this experience of being in heaven. And then uh, if they go to communion, and by the way, any Catholic can go to communion in any Catholic church. So a Roman Catholic can go to a Byzantine Catholic church and receive communion, not a problem. But they might be confused as to how to receive communion because we do it very differently. So first of all, they notice that we use leavened bread. Uh, in the Roman Catholic tradition, you guys use unleavened bread, you know, like, a, like they did at the Passover, right? It's a connection with the Passover meal. But in most of the Eastern Catholic churches, we use leavened bread um, because Christ rose from the dead and the bread rose. Uh, you know, the, the word for risen is very significant to us. We sing it repeatedly during the Easter season in Greek, and it describes both Christ risen from the dead, but also risen bread. So mm-hmm. our bread is risen symbolically because Christ has risen. And um, what we do for communion is we take the bread uh, and we cut it into cubes. We cut it into cubes and put it in the chalice with the wine. So the consecrated bread, the body of Christ is placed in the chalice with the wine, the blood of Christ. And the cubes of consecrated bread absorb the blood of Christ. Hmm. So what happens is when you go to receive communion uh, in most of the Byzantine churches, you'll walk up and you open your mouth like a baby bird 
and lean backwards. And a priest or a deacon like myself will take a spoon. And with that spoon, we take a little uh, cube, you know, the body of Christ absorbing the blood of Christ, and we drop it in your mouth. And we're very good at not hitting your teeth. No, we're good at Thanks. that. <laughs> so that's how you receive communion in the uh, Byzantine tradition. There are some exceptions, though, like many of the Melkite parishes do a little bit differently. Or what they do is they cut the the bread into like strips, mm. you know, and they dip the bread into the wine, the body into the mm. blood, and, and they put it in your mouth that way, just using their hands, not a spoon. But most of the Byzantine churches use a spoon. Okay, interesting. And then uh, anything else that would would stand out and be, oh, this is this is very different than than you know my Roman Catholic parish. Yeah, it took me. Uh, it takes me a minute to wrap my mind around this because it's so normal to me now, right? Mm. But they might be surprised to see um, children, like babies, receiving communion, mm. because in our Byzantine tradition, and all the Eastern Catholic churches do this. We've kept the three sacraments of initiation united as one. They're all done together at the same time. So when my children were baptized, um, they were baptized and then they were confirmed and then they received their first communion all at the same time. So for an infant, what you do is give them some of the precious blood and that's their first communion and they keep receiving communion every week thereafter. So my daughters have received communion their entire lives since they were little babies. Um, once they're old enough, of course, they get they get the, the body and blood together in the cube. Um, but that often surprises people. They don't they're not expecting to see that. Um, but that's normal for us. That's how we've always done it, always. Mm -hmm. And they also may be surprised to see a little kid running up to the priest and saying, "Daddy," because <laughs> uh, in our parishes, most of the priests are married. Not all, but the majority of, of parish priests are married in most of the Eastern Catholic churches. But people get the mistaken impression we don't value celibacy. We actually strongly value celibacy. Our bishops are always celibate. But we also have a strong emphasis upon the monastic life. We we have monasteries full of celibate uh, men and, and celibate women. And for us, the monastic life is seen almost like... Um, the special ideal, the model for everyone to follow, um, more so than being a priest even. Mm -hmm. So we really emphasize the monastic aspect of Christianity more so than the West does today, at least. And uh, celibacy is highly valued in that context. Hmm. That's really interesting. Well, I won't take up any more of your time. I really appreciate you talking with me and, and sharing on Why Catholic about the Ukrainian Catholic Church and Eastern Catholicism in general. Um, it's a real pleasure to have you. So thank you so much, Father Deacon Anthony. Oh, my pleasure, Justin, and awesome questions. Very good questions. The Eastern Catholic Churches is one of my favorite topics to discuss in all of Catholicism. It's not because I'm part of an Eastern Catholic Church. I'm very active in a Roman Catholic Church. But it interests me because it speaks to the ongoing effort of the Catholic Church to grow in unity. Please check out some of the show notes where I have a link to a number of resources, including Father Deacon Anthony's website, easttowest.org. It's a wonderful place to learn more about Eastern Catholicism. Let me take a minute to thank Father Deacon Anthony for joining me on Why Catholic and the work he is doing to serve the Catholic community and being a bridge between the East and the West. 
Please take to heart Father Deacon Anthony's words about raising awareness about our Eastern Catholic brothers and sisters. And please remember to continue to pray for the people of Ukraine and particularly the Ukrainian Catholic and Ukrainian Orthodox Church, that they may be a light of peace, love, and unity in the midst of this unjust war. Thank you for joining me for Why Catholic. Be sure to subscribe to Why Catholic wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also subscribe to my Substack site and get the next episode in your email inbox. As a subscriber, you get a special discount code to the Why Catholic Etsy store. If you've been blessed by this podcast and you're feeling generous, there's also a way to financially support it and patrons get some extra perks. To become a free subscriber or a patron, just go to whycatholic.substack.com slash subscribe. Also join me on Instagram at whycatholicpodcast, all one word. Thanks again for listening. My name is Justin Hibbard, and this is Why Catholic. God bless you.